0: This is the University's Seventh-day Adventist Church in this sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today, and may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our featured sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again this morning. I love the music. And it's a good chance for us to get together and worship together this morning. My goal this morning is to honor Christ and uh, to share with you a little bit. We're going to be talking about uh, John the Baptist. We're going to be talking about Job. And we're going to be talking about human suffering. And, um, but I thought I would begin by sharing a little bit of my own personal testimony with you. And again, the thing I want you to know is that in Christ is real freedom. In Christ there is real healing. Um, I literally grew up in the church. I got to thinking about it earlier and realized that that I literally grew up in the church because for the first five years of my life we lived in an apartment over a church in uh, Utica, New York. And um, my father was an individual who had two modes he could be a generous man when he wanted to be and when uh, he was moved to be generous he'd give you the shirt off of his back but he was also a man that had a, a, a horrible temper and um, I'm the youngest of four children and I can remember my brother saying to me one day "I said I remember dad doing to you what he did to all of us and that was that he would whip you and if you made the mistake of crying he'd beat you till you stopped And if that meant that you were unconscious on the floor, that was as far as he would take it. And by the time I was five years old, he'd already broken my nose and broken bones in my face. In fact, when I was in the seminary, I was having so much trouble with breathing and so much trouble with allergies that I went to a a surgeon and he began to talk to me about my, my broken nose and... And uh, had to, and then after the surgery was done, he told me he had to take bone out of one side of my face in order to help me breathe a little better. And um, we, we lived with the constant fear of, of his temper. I can remember when we were in that building, and I've often theorized, I don't know why I don't hate the church, because punishment for me was to be locked in the basement of that place. When I was uh, probably four and a half years old, I can still remember being sitting at the top of the stairs in the dark waiting to be let out and when he would finally open the door he wouldn't pick me up and I never realized that there was something wrong with all of that until you know I had children of my own and when my sons would start to cry my initial reaction my immediate reaction was to pick, pick them up and hold them and try to console them but he would march me up the stairs and I was so small I could only take one step at a time but he would march me up the stairs all the way to the second floor without saying a word. I always knew he was right behind me. I always knew that if I didn't get up those stairs fast enough that I was probably gonna get punished again. Uh, He became a public school principal and uh, I was always sent to the church school. Apparently from talking to friends I came to the realization that there was a lot of school that I missed. Whenever I would get uh, the beatings I probably missed school for for several days until the black and blue marks had disappeared. And um, if I got in trouble at the church school, I would get a whipping when I got home. So I get a whipping at school, then I get whipped when I got home again. And the the to add to the whole scenario was the fact that when I was seven years old, um, the one person who was able to stand between us occasionally was my mother, although she took her fair share of of, of physical abuse too. Um, but uh, it's, when I was seven years old, my mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's. So from that point on, I tried to help take care of her. I would get her food. I would get her whatever she needed. I would try to, try to be there for my mother. She cried every day of my life as a child because she kept praying. She prayed, you know, that God would heal her. And, and when we would have our, our prayers, uh, we all would, were supposed to pray that she would be healed. She was anointed twice by the pastor there in that church and uh, and God simply chose not to give us what we wanted and um, she lived out the rest of her life as an invalid with, with Parkinson's and uh, hers was, you know, it's not uncommon for, for senior citizens to develop Parkinson's but she developed it when she was she was 41 when I was born so she was 48 when she was diagnosed with a form of Parkinson's that just took everything from her. She was a smart, college-trained woman. She was a, a, the head nurse of a large nursing home. She was a, the church pianist. She would play the piano. She'd play the organ. Uh, tried to teach me how to play the piano. Never had much success with that. I just never had the patience to, to stay there and, and, and practice like I was supposed to. And, uh, but that was my life. But here's the truth, and that is that God brings healing. And uh, in in one of the final conflicts I had with my dad, I got shipped away because at the age of 13 I dared him to hit me. I wasn't going to take it anymore. I was going to fight. And so I got packed up and sent to a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school. And that was the miracle of my life because it was a fellow student and a dean of boys there at Union Springs Academy in upstate New York that, that got to my heart and I gave my heart to Christ at the second half of my junior year and 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 God has blessed he is blessed and he brings healing connected me with a a wife who knew who who wouldn't give up gave me a chance to grow out of all of the the stuff that held me prisoner here's the truth and that is in Jesus you don't have to be prisoners to the past you don't have to be prisoners but I have no illusions I know life can be hard I know it can be sharp-edged I know that it can be mean And I know that our hearts are broken many many times by the things that happen. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Let's bow our heads. Father, now as we open up your word, as we get ready to speak, as I get ready to speak, I pray that the Holy Spirit will use these words to bring encouragement. Bless us today as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin today by looking at the middle of Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 begins with the story of the rejection of Christ by those of his own community, Jesus comes home to Nazareth and uh, he went to the synagogue as was his his custom on the Sabbath. He has been teaching and preaching everywhere else and there have been crowds and multitudes thronging every step and listening to all that he has to say And Jesus comes home to Nazareth, and you know things are always a little different at home than they are everywhere else, don't you? Don't you agree with that, you know? You get home, you can be a big shot someplace else, but when you get home, it's a whole different story. Mark tells us that those who were listening to Jesus in Nazareth were astonished at his words. Now the word astonishment to us is kind of a positive thing, but in the original Greek, it wasn't. It's indicating that there was a problem. And verse 3 gives us a sense of what the people of Nazareth were feeling about Christ. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. I know what your question is. We're not going to deal. <laughs> with who his brothers and sisters were. The Tsar of Ages does tell us that that Joseph had children from an earlier marriage that he was a widower and there may have been other children somehow in that family. That's another sermon another time. But apparently, either, you know, apparently the point of the story is that these people watched Jesus grow up. He was the little boy that would be sent to the farmer to get eggs or to go get milk. He was the young carpenter who was working with his father, repairing the kitchen table, or, or delivering the new chairs. And is he going to be their teacher? That was the attitude. Who does he think he is? I watched him as a little boy, and he's going to teach me now? And they were offended because of him. Mark quotes Jesus as saying something that we're quite familiar with. And this is where it comes from. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. And then Mark goes on to say something that is really quite interesting and probably deserves more time than I'm going to give it today. He says in verses 5 and 6, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. It is clear that Christ has made his willingness to help dependent upon our willingness to believe and what follows next is the sending out of the 12 disciples and then comes the part that we want to look at today it's about John the Baptist about his death Mark seems to essentially pause the story about Christ to tell us the details of what happened to John the Baptist Mark chapter 6 verses 14 and on now King Herod heard of him that is Christ for his name had become well known. And he said John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. Verse 15. Others said it is Elijah and others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard he said this is John whom I beheaded he has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother's Philip's wife for he had married her because John had said to Herod it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him but she could not for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him and when he heard him he did many things and heard him gladly now it's apparent that Herodias liked the arrangement here she was married to Herod's brother but why settle for second place when by seduction and enticement, she could have the top. And then came this nagging voice in the form of a man that was dressed like an Old Testament prophet announcing to everyone in general that her relationship with Herod was a sin. She was going to teach this baptizer a few things about not messing with Herod's lover. The problem was that Herod had a conscience and it wasn't dead yet it was inclined to listen to John's voice and while he didn't act on his convictions he couldn't stop listening either you know there's a danger to being convicted about something and not acting on the conviction when the Spirit is telling us that something is wrong and we don't act on that conviction it becomes easier and easier to ignore the the voice of the Holy Spirit did you know that? we can become tone-deaf to the Holy Spirit Herod was in trouble and he didn't seem to know it. The Spirit was bringing conviction to his heart and the devil in the voice of Herodias kept whispering in his ear. Herodias' moment finally came, verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. This party has been going on for a while. Herod and his guests have been partying for some time. The wine is doing its job of dulling the senses and lulling the conscience to sleep. Herodias knew that this was her chance and so she sent her daughter in to dance before the king. Verse 22. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. What an experience! Listen to "Desire of Ages." Now, the king was dazed with wine; passion held sway, and reason was dethroned. He saw—he saw only the hall of pleasure, with its reveling guests, the banquet table, the sparkling wine, the flashing lights, and the young girl dancing before him. In the recklessness of the moment, he desired to make some display that would exalt him before the great men of his realm. With an oath. He promised to give the daughter of Herodias whatever she might ask, even to half his kingdom. Verse 24. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Boy, what a hardened little girl this was. She must have seen stuff that, that really seared her conscience. Verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Desire of Ages again tells us that if even one of the guests had raised an objection, John's life would have been spared. But they were all in the same condition as Herod. They were drunk, and conscience was asleep at the switch. And Herod didn't want to look fickle in front of all of these government leaders and so he issued the commands. Verse 27 Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. You know to many the experience of John the Baptist is a mystery. Here was a servant of God left to languish in a dark, damp prison cell. His only crime was in standing for the truth. He was the herald of the coming of Christ and yet his life was one of suffering. Even John had his moments when doubts began to afflict his mind. In, in Luke 7 it tells us that John is already in prison. He's been there for quite a while. We are told that, that days and nights in a cold, damp prison cell had taken its toll on John. And you know something, he would have been superhuman if there hadn't been moments of doubt and wondering as to what was going on and wondering as to why God had seemed to abandon him. And he was cramped and suffering in this, in this terrible place. And there comes a moment in Luke 7 when he sends his disciple disciples to Christ... Here's what it says, is that when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, Jesus doesn't answer the question immediately. He doesn't give them an answer immediately. He he lets them sit down and watch him work, and he heals the sick, he casts out demons, he opens the ears of the deaf, And in verses 22 and 23 of the same chapter, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The disciples go back to John with the report of all that they had seen and all the words of Christ And he immediately recognizes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 35, verse 4 says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This was a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And John the Baptist, when he heard the description of everything that Christ had been doing, and when he heard Christ's words, the words that had been spoken to his disciples, he knew that Jesus was the long-looked-for Messiah. And we are told that from that moment on, he was willing to live or die as God saw fit. He was content with whatever happened. In Luke's account, Jesus is quoted as saying, Among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And yet, John would be left to face a martyr's death to satisfy the lust for power in the heart of an evil woman. Brothers and sisters, there are times when God chooses not to intervene. There are times when in the path of suffering comes into our life, And the Lord offers no option out when He doesn't give us the privilege of getting out of the problem we're in. There are times when tribulation comes and when hardship strikes, and we send out the messengers, Lord, where are you? I don't understand what's going on here. What's going on? Why, Why have you left me here like this? What is going on? What has gone wrong? Religion, for some, treats faith as if it's a good luck charm. As if as long as we have faith, nothing bad is going to happen to us. When the reality is very, very different. Even God's children suffer. You know, when I was working on the sermon, I stopped and looked back at the title of the sermon, Even the Good Suffering, I realized that that's probably not quite accurate. Because Paul would be very quick to tell us that there's no one good. Not One that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A better title might have been, Even the Children of God Suffer. Even the Children of God Suffer. There's too much of Christianity that treats religion as a good luck charm, as if faith is going to keep bad things from happening. But bad things happen even to those who have faith. We live in a world of sin and all of us have sinned and we're all affected by sin. You know one of the most important stories in the Bible when it comes to the topic of suffering is the story of Job. Probably one of my favorites in the Bible. You know Job was so committed to God that he not only offered sacrifice for himself but he offered sacrifice for his children and he had a bunch of children. But he, offered, he would offer sacrifices for them just in case they had unknowingly done something wrong and hadn't yet confessed it to God. And so he'd offer sacrifice for them too. And how God sees Job is revealed In his own words all of the angelic hosts present themselves before the Lord and guess who's there among them in Job 1 verses 8 through 11 it says then the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears God and shuns evil so Satan answered the Lord and said does Job fear God for nothing have you not made a hedge around him Around his household and around all that he has on every side. You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. Of course he serves you. You give him everything he wants. You bless everything that he does. But remove your blessing and he will curse you to your face. Do you know that that's the central issue in the book of Job? The central issue in the book of Job is when God removes his blessings, will Job curse him? Now, Job has his questions like all of us. And there are places in the book of Job where he cries out and says, why are you doing this? My paraphrase. He endures suffering beyond anything anyone his year here has yet had to face. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his children, lost all of his wealth. Lost his health. Everything is taken from him. And there are moments in the book of Job when Job cries out and he vocalizes his complaints just like we do. Why, Lord? What's going on here? But then comes Job chapter 13, verse 15, and it may be one of the most important statements in the book of Job and maybe in the Bible. Because Job, after all of his complaining and trying to figure out what's going on, finally says, Though he slay me... Yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, he's taken everything else. If he is going to take my life, I will trust him anyhow. I will trust him anyhow. You know, the prosperity religion that has become the mantra of Christianity today has no room for suffering in, in its view of faith. Do you know that? And for many, their religion is based on the blessings that God supplies. And when suffering enters the picture, their faith crumbles and they cry out in agony. Why, oh God, are you letting this happen to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? If Satan were to appear before the Lord and have a conversation with God about us like he did about Job, what would that conversation be like? What would that conversation be like? Yes, yeah, she claims to be a Christian. But take her health from you, take her health from her, and she will lose her faith in an instant. Sure, he's a leader in the congregation, but take away his income and he will forget all about your promises and do whatever he thinks is necessary to provide for his family, even if it's unethical or dishonest. Let the diagnosis from the doctor be a bad one, and they will act as if you had never been there for them. And all of the universe watches to see if the accusations are true. What will the children of God do when they are faced with trial and affliction and hardship and suffering? Will they remain faithful? Will they trust? Will they keep their trust or will they let it go? You know, if you look at the stories in the Bible... The majority of them seem to center on this issue of trusting God in every situation. Israel comes to the borders of the promised land and sends in the 12 spies. And all of them come back to give a report. And 10 of those spies say, yeah, the the land is great. The food is good. But it's filled with giants that are stronger than us. God who parted the Red Sea who rained manna from the sky, who was their guide by day and their protector by night, was was forgotten. Their cry was the cry that we always hear. Why did he bring us out here just to let us die? Why, O Lord, did you bring us out here? Why did you bring us out here to let us just perish? Weren't there enough room for graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here that we would die? Even their disobedience according to the book of Hebrews was based on their unwillingness to believe that the Lord would keep his promises. Now please understand I'm not here to whip us. But modern Israel has many of the same problems. We are willing to believe as long as God makes sure that nothing bad happens to us. We're willing to believe as long as everything is going okay. But i I believe, brothers and sisters, that the Word of God is calling us to a higher standard. It's calling us to a higher level of faith than that. I'm here to tell you that all through the history of Christianity, there have been those who refused to let go of their faith no matter what happened. Yes, there have been those who faced terrible persecution for their commitment to Jesus. And we kind of understand that. You know, We kind of think that tribulation that we are, are going to face is supposed to be some form of persecution for our faith in Jesus. That's okay. It's okay if we suffer for Christ's sake. But this other stuff, well, that wasn't part of the deal, was it? I mean, we really didn't really... This other stuff wasn't supposed to be part of the picture. But I'm here to tell you that all through the history of Christianity, there have been those among God's people who have suffered, some because of disease, some because of poverty, some because of tragedy and hardship, and they never let go of their faith in Jesus. They never let go of their faith in Jesus. I can't tell you why sorrow has entered your life. I can't give you the reasons why your heart has to be broken. There are problems and and issues that we will have to ask for the answers when we can stand before Jesus and ask him face to face and the Lord I believe will have an explanation that makes sense And we will take our crowns off and throw them at his feet and say, Lord, you made the right choice every single time. There are some answers that Jesus will have to explain when he gets here. But here's what I know for sure. Three things I know for sure. And three things that I believe with every ounce of my being. And the first one is this. And that is that our Heavenly Father loves us deeply, passionately. He loved us enough to send his only son to pay the price for our guilt. We don't deserve the least of his mercies. But Christ came and suffered the most horrific, painful, and gruesome death possible in order to save you and I. A God who would do that for us loves us enough that we are never out of his care or out of his sight. We are deeply and passionately loved. Loved so much that we are told that that he would have given a son for just one of us. He knows you, he knows me, he knows us right down to the numbers of the hairs on our head and I'm I'm being told that I'm losing a few of those as I get older. But he loves us enough that he would have done all of this for just you or for me. So the first thing I know for certain is that we are loved deeply and passionately by our Heavenly Father. Second thing I know is that he is determined to save us no matter what. That he's going to do everything he can to save us. Now, not everybody is going to choose to be saved. The Lord will not force us to accept his gift of salvation. But he will do everything he can to awaken in our hearts a sense of our need. He will push us to the wall. He will allow us to experience the outcome of our bad decisions. To awaken in us a desire for something better. To awaken in us a hunger for something better. He will do whatever it takes to get us to open our hearts to him. The third thing I know for certain is that the Lord has eternity in mind for us. That everything that we go through has the goal of eternity. Whatever I have to go through here pales in comparison with eternity when we stand in the gates of heaven and we see the joy that is set before us and we look into that magnificent glorious face of Jesus, what we have got what we have had to go through here will pale in comparison now don't misunderstand me again I'm not trying to minimize what people go through I'm not trying to minimize the suffering that you've had to face life can hurt badly Life can, can sting badly. The war between good and evil is still being waged. Suffering is still the rule of this world. And I know that my heart someday will be broken by the circumstances of, of this life. But I beg you, whatever happens in your life, don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of Christ. Eternity is ahead. Jesus is coming to take us home. The gates of heaven are open. And even if I am locked in the, in the dark and I can't see the light, I can feel the warmth radiating from the gates of heaven because the gates are open and Jesus is coming to get us, to take us home. Don't let go. Don't give up. Jesus will hold your hand through the worst suffering. He will not let go of you no matter what happens. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is the story of Jairus' daughter. He comes to Jesus because his daughter is critically ill and wants desperately to save her life. I raised two boys. You know, we have two granddaughters now. Girls are so different than boys. <laughs> it's such a wild experience, you know, when they, they would occasionally come over and stay overnight with us. I abandon ship. I, I leave the master bedroom to Grandma and the girls, and I head to the guest room on the other side of the house, you know. It's just like, it's just, you know, the, you know, it's the dolls and the getting into the bed in the middle of the night and getting the, you know, the, the foot and the ribs and stuff. I, I just kind of say, it's easier for me to go sleep in the, in the guest room, you know. So I leave Grandma with the girls on the one side, and I head to the guest room. And I can see Jairus' face. He is desperate because his little girl is sick, critically sick. And he finally finds Jesus, and they are on their way, but the crowds are thronging them on every side. And I can sense the man's anxiety. He must have heart must have just been on the verge of heart attack, just the stress of trying to get to the house because it is it is so. Critical that they get there before he loses that little girl and and the crowd is thronging him And then this woman comes and touches the hem of a robe and everything comes to a, a stop Well, Jesus is asking who touched me and Jairus must have been in inside of his head. He must have been frantic frantic, please let's keep moving. We've got to keep moving and finally They get all of that taken care of and the crowd is still thronging them and they're still trying to push their way through the crowd and a servant comes up and grabs Jairus by the arm and whispers in his ear don't trouble him any further I'm sorry but she's gone she's dead he must have been ready to break but Jesus turns around and catches him in the eyes and says don't be afraid just believe just believe and Jesus had it in hand I don't know what the circumstances of your life are I don't know what's breaking your heart right now I don't know what keeps you awake at night what makes it difficult for you to find peace I don't know what it is that what the crisis is in your life right now that seems to dog your step Jesus is in control And he's looking into your eyes this morning and he's saying to you, don't be afraid, just believe.